Well, good morning, everyone. Uh, it's uh, fantastic to be in God's Word together, so uh, let's pray. Uh, Father, we thank you so much that you are our Father. Uh, thank you for your great uh, love and forgiveness and mercy to us. Thank you that uh, in your love you've given us your Word uh, and your very great and precious promises. And please, Father, this morning as we reflect on these promises, uh, refresh us, uh, comfort us, give us all that we need, and we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. If you're a Christian, God is your father. That's incredible. We heard that last week. Can you believe that? The Lord God Almighty, the creator of heaven and earth, the ruler of the universe, the king of kings and lord of lords, the eternally existent God of all things is your father if you trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. And so now our life as Christians is a life lived in relationship with God as father. And the way we live in that relationship with God as Father is by trusting Him, trusting His words to us, trusting His promises to us. That's the nature of our relationship with Him. Absolutely foundational, trusting the promises of God. That's how we started a relationship with God, trusting Him. That's how we continue in a relationship with God, trusting Him. Trusting His promises to us and growing in our trust in those promises to us day by day. And our trust in our Father's promises to us is not just to be in the good times and the easy times, but also in the difficult and the painful times of fear and sadness. In fact, it's in these very times that if we have a deep and robust trust in the promises of God, they're a deep comfort to us, a deep encouragement to us. And his promises will be a big part of what keeps us actually following Jesus until the end, if we trust them. What are these promises? In our passage this morning, we've got three wonderful promises that I want to highlight. But before we get there, the passage reminds us of present reality. What is the present reality in which we live? And then into that reality, it injects three wonderful and precious promises to cling to. Three big promises from our Father that we can trust in. And so firstly, the reminder of the reality that we live in. And reality is this, Christians suffer. Even though I'm a child of God, if my trust in Jesus, even though I'm a loved child of the Lord of the universe, even though his goodness is always towards me, I will suffer as a Christian. Christians are not exempt. There's plenty of false teaching around the place that says, if you're a Christian, you won't suffer. Or if you are suffering, it's your fault. You haven't got enough faith. Rubbish. Lies. Verse 16. Look with me, it's easy as you're actually sitting at home to not be as engaged with the word, but a way to really help you engage is have your Bible out. Open it up, follow the verses. So come with me, verse 16. We are God's children. Verse 17. We are heirs of God, co-heirs with Christ. Second half of verse 17. If we share in his sufferings, that's Jesus' sufferings, in order that we may also share in his glory. We are God's children, we are set to inherit all that God has for us. We are his heirs, glory, eternal life. But the path to glory, like Jesus, is through suffering. As a child of God, you will actually suffer. In fact, in this passage, life in this world is pictured as a life of groaning. If you look there in verse 22, you can see that the creation, the universe that God has created, groans, as in the pains of childbirth right up to the present time. 
If you look in verse 23, you can see not only does the creation groan, but Christians also groan, groaning, groaning. And later in the passage, the Holy Spirit groans. Life in this world is depicted as a life of groaning. And that's a, that's a, a heavy word, isn't it? It speaks of such inner emotional pain and turmoil that it, it can only come out in a grunting cry of pain. When you can't even utter words, instead you groan. So often that's life in this world. In fact, other words in this passage are used to convey the same reality. See, look, verse 17 again. Sufferings. Verse 18, present sufferings. Verse 20, frustration. Verse 21, bondage or slavery to decay. This is life for all human beings, including Christians in this world. Suffering, frustration, slavery, decay, groaning. Why? Because there's something profoundly wrong with our world. In fact, there's something profoundly wrong with our universe. And you can see it right there in verse 20. The creation was subjected to frustration. The creation, everything that God has created, the universe and all that is in it, all that is good and complex and diverse and beautiful and wonderful and breathtaking is also broken. Verse 20 says that something so terrible has happened that the whole creation is broken. A catastrophic event. Something so devastatingly destructive that every part of this beautiful, wonderful creation is broken, fallen, damaged. And this catastrophic event is, is worse than World War I. Worse than World War II, worse than a COVID pandemic, worse than natural disasters because this catastrophic event is the root of all the other problems and issues in this world. This catastrophic event was so devastatingly destructive that from that moment forward, all creatures, from the tiniest organism to the greatest mammal, have been impacted. It has impacted every continent, every land, every ocean, every sea, every galaxy, every star, every world, across all of time from that moment until today. This is the catastrophic event beyond all catastrophic events. Verse 20, Creation was subjected to frustration, not by its own choice, but by the will of the one who subjected it. And the will of the one who subjected it is God, the creator. In response to our defiance against him, our rebellion against him, trying to seize control and say, I will rule and not you, God. God has, in his just judgment, caused, subjected the world to frustration which has shattered the entire universe in every part from that moment forward. The creation was subjected by God to frustration. And that word frustration actually has a rich Old Testament history. If you've ever read the book of Ecclesiastes, it's littered through the book, usually translated in our NIVs as meaninglessness or meaningless. This word frustrated can be translated frustrated, futile, vain, meaningless. The universe has been frustrated, thrust into futility and vanity and meaninglessness um, from the purpose for which it is designed. It no longer achieves the purpose for which it was designed in an unhindered way. It's frustrated from that purpose. And that purpose was to bring unhindered glory to God. And because we are born into this universe, what's life like for us? What's our experience of life like? Well, it's so often one of frustration of futility, of vanity, of a struggle to find meaning and satisfaction. Everything we pursue either eludes us and we can't get it, or worse, we do get it 
and it doesn't satisfy in the way that we thought it would, we wished it would. Futility, frustrating. That's what the book of Ecclesiastes is about. And all that is picked up here in that word frustration. The creation no longer achieves the purpose for which it was designed in an unhindered way. It's frustrated from that purpose, the purpose of bringing unhindered glory to God. And now instead, look towards the end of verse 21. Now instead, it's in bondage to decay. The whole creation, the universe and all that is in it, is in slavery, is in chains to decay. Everything is dying. Everything is rotting. Everything is rusting. Everything is falling apart. Everything is broken. Everything is fallen from its original beauty and design and unhindered purpose. Which is why we live in a world of suffering and frustration and slavery to decay and groaning which explains why the world is the way it is beautiful but broken beauty and wonder everywhere and yet pain and death everywhere also you imagine during um this lockdown you think you know what i really need and really need some retail therapy i could really use the new iphone i don't even know what that one is what the latest version is but you, you order it it comes to your door you, you, you unwrap it and and then you know that moment you take the top off the box you know the the light shines out of it and the the angelic um army sing wow the, the iphone comes out and you pull it and you take the packaging off don't know how they get that packaging so beautiful and thin you take it off and you go look what i've got and it shatters on the ground oh you pick up your iphone your new iphone you look at it and there's a shatter right across the screen every time you use it from that moment forward every app every press of the button you're looking through a shattered screen everything's obscured in some way the volume button is dented in and so you can't lift the volume above about you know a quarter up and so every time you're on the phone you can hear but you can't quite hear and there's a little chip on the camera and say so every time you're on the lens every time you take a photo there's a problem with the photo and yet you think man I'm not spending that money again I'm going to stick with this phone I have to stick with this phone and so you live with this phone that works it's okay but it's broken it's shattered it's a pale reflection of what it was meant to be isn't that our world <laughs> a shattered version of what it was meant to be held together and bearing some similarity to what God designed so that it still resembles in some way the beautiful, purposeful, good creation that God originally made it to be, and yet fallen, broken, shattered in such a profound and massive way that it's enslaved to death and decay, and it groans. And just as creation groans, we groan as Christians. Verse 18 reminds us, we live in the present era of sufferings, and it's explicitly talking to Christians. Don't think... That because we are God's children, we are exempt from the sufferings of this age. I think it's one of the reasons that Paul writes these very words. It's a reminder. We still get viruses. We still get cancer. We're still in car accidents. We still have loved ones die. We still experience the horror of broken relationships and the consequences of wrong choices and the darkness of depression and, and, and. Christians are not immune to the sufferings of living in this fallen world as fallen people. And... Christians will experience even additional sufferings. The suffering of temptation. I want to do what my father wants me to do, and yet the flesh cries out to do other. And so we have to struggle, and there's pain and suffering in that. Christians deal with the unique suffering 
of the experience of rejection, of pressure, of persecution, of hostility of a world that doesn't love God where we do love God. At the very least, people will think we are idiots for the things that we believe and the way that we live. At worst, they'll think we're evil. And so we groan inwardly because of all these sufferings. Verse 23, while we wait for the age to come. This is present reality. Christians suffer. But into the midst of this, our Father gives us some very wonderful and precious promises. Promises we can trust. Promises that if we trust will bring us great comfort. Promise one. Christians suffer, but our Father's future for us is incredible. We will and we do suffer as Christians now in this broken world, but there is hope. There is sure, solid, certain hope. You can see it there in the last two words of verse 20. Have a look there. God has subjected the creation to frustration in hope. Christians suffer, but God's future for us is incredible, beyond what we could possibly even imagine. And the hope pictured here is captured in this passage in a number of ways, but one word comes up four times, glory. You see it there again, verse 17, Christians will share in Christ's glory. In verse 18, the sufferings of Christians are now not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in them. Now, can you believe that? <laughs> All the terrible sufferings that we will experience in this life, not worth comparing <laughs> with the glory that's to come. Verse 21, the creation will be brought into the freedom and glory of God's children. Verse 30, Christians are glorified. Glory, 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 glory. That's the future. Other words to convey a similar reality. Verse 21, liberation. Verse 21, freedom. Verse 22, a new creation. Verse 23, the fullness of the harvest. Verse 23, being adopted, the fullness of our adoption. Verse 23, the redemption of our body. It's an incredible future that God has planned for us. And this incredible future is not just for us Christians as individuals, though it is, but for the whole creation. God's promise is that glory will follow groaning. Right back at the beginning, when humanity rebelled against God, and so God subjected the world to frustration recorded in Genesis 3, God did it right then, Genesis 3, in hope. You see it in Genesis 3.15. Right there is a promise of an incredible future. Right there is promised one who will come and liberate us from slavery. The Lord Jesus is the one. And that's what's promised here. Final liberation from slavery to death and decay. Ultimately, the chains that bind creation into slavery will be struck off and creation will again achieve its purpose unhindered. The whole universe will be brought into the glory and freedom of God's children. That's what the future holds. Glory. That's the Christian hope. A whole renewed universe. A new creation. So have a look at verse 22. We know that the whole creation has been groaning as in the pains of childbirth right up to the present time. That's a reminder of our experience now. We live in a creation which is, its entirety is groaning as in the pains of childbirth. Now, you don't want to point this out to a woman who is in childbirth, but she's groaning. She's in agony. It's painful. That's creation now. Fires, floods, droughts, famines disasters, earthquakes, volcano, virus, cancer, sickness, disease, environmental degradation, murder, accidents, mental, emotional pain. The created order is groaning 
in the pains of childbirth. But the thing about the image the Apostle Paul doesn't even need to spell out is the pains of childbirth lead to childbirth, a new life, a new creation. The whole purpose of God was that the creation would groan as in the pains of childbirth so that a new creation could be born, a new universe, a renewed universe, a perfected universe, out of this world. So it's like this world, but renewed to such an extent, it's new. No brokenness, no decay, no ruin, no frustration, no death. This is the hope of Christians. And verse 23, not only is this the hope of the whole creation, but Christians as well. Verse 23, not only is the whole creation growing, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit grown inwardly as we eagerly await our adoption to sonship, the redemption of our bodies. Christians who, because of Jesus' death for us, are now God's children. He is our Heavenly Father. But we still eagerly wait for the full sonship, the full adoption, the, the redemption of our bodies to come. Christians who have been redeemed now, if you put your trust in Jesus, have been, by Jesus' blood, he has brought us back out of slavery to sin and death. We are redeemed now. But, verse 23 says, we are waiting the full redemption of our bodies, the total freedom from sin and death when that is no more, the re resurrection when Jesus returns. Verse 23, Christians, if your faith is in Jesus, have the Holy Spirit now. But verse 23 tells us it's only the first fruits of the Holy Spirit. The full harvest is yet to come when Jesus returns and God renews all things. Incredible blessing in being a Christian right now. But the greater experience of all that blessing, far more wonderful, is to come when Jesus returns and God renews all things. And so we groan inwardly now while we wait for, verse 21, the freedom and glory of the children of God when each of us will be freed from slavery to bondage to decay, freed from these bodies to give, have renewed bodies, freed from our sin and our rebellious spirit towards God and made into the glorious image of Jesus that we were meant to be when Jesus returns and renews the whole creation. It's for this hope, verse 24, that we were saved. Don't have it yet. It's coming. It's future. But it's certain. God has given it to us. We suffer, but God's future for us is incredible. Do you trust that promise of your heavenly Father? Promise two. Christians suffer, but our Father's work for us is unstoppable. His, our Father's work to keep us for that incredible future. Now, there's two big ways in this passage that God is working right now to keep us for our heavenly future. And the first is God's Spirit is praying for us. Have a look at verse 26. In the same way, the Spirit helps us in our weakness. We don't know what we ought to pray for, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us through wordless groans. And he who searches our heart knows the mind of the Spirit because the Spirit intercedes for God's people in accordance with the will of God. It's incredible. God's Spirit prays for us when we don't know what to pray, when we can't pray. And he's actually praying the very things that we need to pray for but can't pray for ourselves or don't know we should pray for ourselves. He is, verse 27, praying in accordance with the will of God so that God will answer those prayers for us. And I think that what's in mind here, it's the context of suffering. It's the times when our suffering is so great we can't pray. 
We don't even know what to pray. We can't even focus to pray. And so in those moments, the Spirit in our weakness is praying the very things we need to pray on our behalf to His Heavenly Father. And our Father in love is answering those prayers for us. Have you ever been in that place? It's so broken. You are so dark. You know you should pray, but things are so heavy and dark and painful and oppressive, all you can do is groan. In that moment, your Heavenly Father is with you. And in those moments, His Spirit is groaning on your behalf, praying for you, interceding for you, praying the very things that you need to be praying for yourself but can't, so He prays them for you. And our Heavenly Father is answering those prayers in love for us to keep us safe for the incredible eternal future that He has for us. Even in the place so terrible you cannot pray, God is at work. A loving Father doesn't leave us alone. We suffer, but God is at work. Firstly, by His Spirit praying for us when we're too weak for ourselves. And secondly, God is working in all circumstances to ultimately glorify us. Have a look at verse 28. And we know that in all things, God works for the good of those who love Him, who have been called according to His purpose. See, the verse starts, and we know, which takes us back to verse 22, which started exactly the same. Verse 22, we know that the whole creation has been groaning as in the pains of childbirth right up to the present time. We know that the world is broken by sin. We know that the whole creation is groaning, longing for Jesus' return to renew all things and liberate it from its brokenness. We know these things, but we also know, verse 28, we know that in all things, God works for the good of those who love him who have been called according to his purpose. We know that in all the circumstances of life in this broken world, all our sufferings and difficulties and hard times and good times, God is working in all those things for the good of those who love him who have been called according to his purpose. Now notice it doesn't say in all things God works for the good of everyone. It's not a general principle that life is just going to work out fine for everyone. No, no. For specific people, God is working good for who? Well, there's one group described in two ways. Those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. Two ways to describe one group, which is Christians. Christians are people who have so experienced the love of God for them that their heart is transformed and now they love him. Not perfectly, not as they should, but truly they love him. Those who love God. And Christians are also those who have been called by God according to his purpose. According to God's good purpose, God has so worked in their hearts by his Holy Spirit, he has drawn them to himself to put their faith in him. God has called them. Christians, those who love God, who have been called according to his purpose. God works in all things for the good of Christians. In all things? Is that for real? That's what it says. What about the day the person you love most died? Was God working for your good right then? When your child needed that serious operation? When you got the cancer diagnosis? When your child is bullied or isolated or mistreated? In your struggle with depression? Your struggle with anxiety? What about when you get retrenched and can't find work? And can I say some of you experienced the most deeply tragic painful and heart-wrenching circumstances that others we could not possibly imagine but every one of us has experienced difficult things and we bear scars in all these things is God working for our good yes 
in all things, God works for the good of his people. In every circumstance, no matter how big or how small, God, the one who is in control of all things, is working for your good if you are a Christian. John Patton and his wife Mary were missionaries in the mid-19th century. They went over to uh, Vanuatu, to the island of Tanna. They went there to share Christ with islands populated by cannibals. Three months after arriving, Mary gave birth to their first child. Very quickly, the child became sick and soon after died. Very soon after that, Mary herself became sick and she died. Now, can you imagine that? John Patton, you're over there, your child has died, your wife has died, you're left there on your own. How would you cope? In his journal, John Patton wrote this about the death of his dear wife. I felt her loss beyond all conception or description in that dark land. It was very difficult to be resigned, left alone and in sorrowful circumstances. But feeling immovably assured that my God and Father was too wise and too loving to err in anything he does or permits, I looked up to the Lord for help and struggled on his work. Did you hear that? His wife and child has died. Assured that my God and Father was too wise and too loving to err, to make any mistake in anything he does or permits. No, my Lord Jesus makes no mistakes. In all things, God works for my good through times of joy and tragedy, adversity and happiness, plenty, even through the sin and wickedness of others towards me. God will judge them, but God is working that for my good if I'm a Christian. Even through my sin. There will be consequences, but God is working it for my good. But what is my good? It's not riches and comfort and ease and health and that all things will be right. No, no, it's a specific purpose that God is working for, a specific good. What is that good? Verse 29. For those God foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, that he might be the firstborn among many brothers and sisters. God's great purpose for us as Christians is to conform us to the image of Jesus. To, through this life, make us more and more and more like Jesus. And then, when Jesus returns and renews all things, to perfect that work so that for all eternity we will fully bear the glory and image of Jesus. We will be glorified. That is God's great purpose. Make you like Jesus so that you will be safe for glory, fully perfected and displaying Jesus' glory forever. That's the ultimate good that God wants to you. So that ultimately Jesus gets all the glory as the firstborn, the first resurrected among many brothers and sisters. That's God's purpose for you. That's the good he wants for you. Work on you to make you more and more like Jesus through this life and keep you safe uh, for heaven. It's the greatest good, the deepest good. God is working in and through all circumstances to make you like Christ for eternity in glory with him. He has your eternal future in mind. Now, I try to be a good dad, and I have many faults and failings. But even me and my wife know that there are times when my kids want certain things, certain goods, and yet we have a wider perspective, a bigger perspective, uh, more experience, and so we have greater goods that we want for them, more long-term goods that we want for them. Things like development of uh, character, of godliness, of resilience, of skills for life. And so 
we can make decisions that cause them pain, stop them having things that they might wish they might have, but we try to do it because we love them and we want a greater good for them. Now, you know what I'm talking about. Sometimes there are even times when our kids are in painful circumstances, difficult circumstances, and as a, as a parents, we could step in and try to save them from those circumstances. But we know to do that would actually cut the nerve of certain things. And so... We leave them in those circumstances even though it hurts our hearts and we coach them and we give them support but try to leave them in those circumstances so that they can learn things like responsibility and development of character and of godliness and of skills for life and resilience and the kids don't understand. They can't see it's best for them but it is best for them, at least we think it is in our flawed way. Now you know what I mean. If I was an imperfect human father, fumbling my way with all sorts of mistakes, trying to do this for my kids, for their long-term good, imagine our Heavenly Father, perfect Father, perfectly loving, perfectly wise, has absolute clarity on the greatest good for us, that is that we be made like Jesus in glory for all eternity. How much more does he know how to order all the circumstances of our life and have the control to do it? That will bring about our greatest good and he experiences the pains of our suffering his children's suffering but he's willing to experience it and let them experience it because he knows it will bring something far better for them and so yes for us there'll be pain there'll be distress there'll be difficulty but our heavenly father makes no mistakes he only does what is best for us god always working in everything for our good not ease or happiness but for our good christians suffer but our Father's work for us is unstoppable. Promise three. Christians suffer, but our Father's love for us is unshakable. Romans 8 finishes with five rhetorical questions. And these five wonderful questions are designed to give us great comfort and confidence that God's goodness and his love are towards us and they cannot be shaken. The love our Father has for us is unshakable. So let's whip through these very, very quickly. Question one, second half of verse 31. If God is for us, who can be against us? And what a wonderful song was shared with us before. If God is for us, who can be against us? Now, many people might be against us, but who cares? If God is for us, it does not matter. Because in the ultimate sense, nothing can stand in the way of the one whom God is for. He will bring about our eternal future. Our Father loves us. He is for us. He wants good for us. That's what he wants us to know. Question two, verse 32. He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also along with him graciously give us all things? <laughs> Paul argues from the greater to the lesser. If God has done the greatest and hardest thing of giving up his own son to save us, what love then you can be sure that he will do the lesser and more easy thing of along with his son, giving us everything that he has promised, all things, every blessing in Christ for all eternity. And the thing that undergirds the confidence here, God's love in giving his own son. Question three, verse 33. Who will bring any charge against those whom God has chosen? It is God who justifies. Who will bring any charge against us before God? Now, again, you might think there might be a lot of people who bring charges against us before God. My own conscience, the devil, people who don't like me. But who cares? None can prevail. All are thrown out. Because God, through the work of Jesus, has already justified us. Has already declared not guilty, innocent. Because 
Jesus has taken the punishment that I deserve. I have been acquitted by God. What incredible love the Father has for us. Question 4, verse 34. Who then is the one who condemns? No one. Christ Jesus, who died more than that, who was raised to life, is at the right hand of God and is also interceding for us. Who will condemn? No one. Because Jesus has died, he is risen, he is ruling in glory at the right hand of the Father, and he is praying for us right now so that we will not be condemned. That's how the Father loves us. And finally, question 5, verse 35. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall trouble or hardship or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger of the sword? For it is written, for your sake we face death all day long. We consider sheep to be slaughtered. Can anything separate the Christian from God's love? Trouble, hardship, persecution, famine, nakedness, danger, sword. Can cancer, disease, disaster, our emotional state, our mental anguish, can death itself separate the Christian from the love that our Father has for us? And the answer, verse 37, no. In all these things we are more than conquerors, super conquerors, through him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Nothing, nothing, nothing can separate us from the love of God that is in Christ, not even death itself. Christians suffer. That's present reality. But our Father's future for us is incredible. Christians suffer, but our Father's work for us day to day in life to keep us for that incredible future is unstoppable. Christians suffer, but our Father's love for us through all of this, all the circumstances, all the ups and downs, our Father's love for us is unshakable. These promises are an incredible comfort if we trust them. I've told this story before, but a number of years ago I woke up I was feeling stiff and sore, headachy, as I tended to always at that time. I got out of bed, taking my uh, drink out to the kitchen. I went to put my drink down on the kitchen uh, bench, and, and I said, Megan, there's something wrong. And, and my, my mouth drooped. I couldn't talk. This side of my body felt numb. I, I sat down, collapsed into a chair, and I started to black in and out of consciousness. I thought I was having a stroke. My wife thought I was having a stroke, so she called the ambulance. The ambulance was there super quick, super quick. And, and as they're working on me, trying to put oxygen in me, I'm, I'm praying, Lord, look after my children, um, in, in a weird mumble. Lord, look after my children. And, and the, the oxygen seemed to resolve things. I'm in the ambulance, off to the hospital, and I spent the whole day at Manly Hospital um, doing tests, doing tests, doing tests. And all the day, I'm thinking, little strokes come, perhaps another one soon perhaps the big one. And then through the week, five days, I'm in Manly Hospital sitting in a strike ward with five other men, 70-plus-year-olds, who are totally incapacitated by strokes that they had, looking around, is this my future? Could another stroke come and I, and, and I could die at any moment, or worse, live the next 40 years of my life like, like this? Now, in those sort of moments, and it turned out that was a migraine, <laughs> so that's a good story, <laughs> But in those sort of moments, and some far more deeply desperate and tragi tragic, in those sort of moments, it's the promises of God that mean a lot to you. Oh, my Father's with me. He loves me. Nothing can shake that love. 
oh, he wants good for me. Even in this circumstance, somehow though I can't see or know it, he's working in this circumstance to make me like Jesus, to keep me for glory. Oh, that future, that glorious future is going to be incredible. Now it takes work to keep trusting and finding comfort in those promises, but they are deeply comforting. So how do you do it? Can I finish with four practical thoughts on how you trust and find comfort in the promises of God? And the first of this, get God's promises in your mind. Why not start with the three from the, you've heard this morning and lock them in your mind? And the way you lock God's promises in your mind is to think about them and think about them and think about them and recall them to mind. Have them ready there to access at your mental fingertips. The ones we've been talking about. My father's future for me is incredible. My father's work day to day to keep me is unstoppable. My father's love for me, no matter the circumstances, is unshakable. Even better if you can tie them to the Bible passage. But have these promises, these truths at your mental fingertips by recalling them, by recalling them, by recalling them. Second practical way to do it. Apply God's promises into the struggles and sufferings of daily life. Bring the promises into your mind in the daily circumstances as you're trying to process what's going on for you mentally and emotionally. And here's a couple of ways to do it. Preach the promises to yourself and pray to your heavenly Father, knowing the promises. Preaching the promises to yourself and praying to the Lord. So, I'm in a circumstance, suffering, sadness, struggle comes upon me. What should I do? Preach to myself. And often you're doing it internally. It's self-talk, especially if there's people around. Graham, remember God is with you. Remember he loves you. Remember his father he, he, and he's in control. Remember he's in control even of this and he's doing this for your ultimate good which is making you like Jesus and keeping you for glory. Heaven is close, Graham. Remember heaven is close. Keep dressing Jesus, he'll take you to be with him. Take the promises and apply them. Preach to yourself into that circumstance because we'd be tempted to process suffering just through our thoughts and our feelings, but we need the promises of God to be the lens through which we see the sufferings so that we can see them rightly. So preach the promises to God to yourself and do it before suffering comes. So when suffering comes, you're ready, you're equipped and you can do it then. Do it in minor suffering and discomfort comes. A couple of days ago, I was, I was getting annoyed down about the lockdown, what it was meaning for my life, but more broadly what it was meaning for church, angry. What did I need to do? What I needed to do was preach the promises to myself in this minor discomfort and suffering so that when major comes along, I could do it then. And pray. Keep asking your Heavenly Father to help you trust these promises, to hold these promises, to believe these promises, and uh, to find comfort in these promises. So keep preaching to yourself and keep praying to the Lord to help you. Third, simultaneously... Work at cherishing God's promises in your heart. So as you're preaching to yourself and praying, one of the things that you're doing uh, is to not just remind yourselves of the promises so you can trust them, but to teach your heart to cherish them, to actually love them, which will require praying to the Lord that he would change your heart so that you will love them, so that you love your eternal future with God more than your life here and now. So that you love your fatherly, father's goodness to you in all the circumstances of life more than you love easy circumstances. So that you love your heavenly father's unshakable love for you more than you love anything else. 
doing the heart work that means these promises are not just clear to you, but they're actually dear to you. And fourth and finally, practical application. When times of suffering come upon you, cling to the promises. Cling to your Father's promises. Sometimes life is so terrible and the pressure is so intense and the pain is so severe and the loss is so devastating. In the overwhelming darkness, all you have is the little candle of God's promises to you. It's the only light in the deep darkness, God's promises. When all your strength is gone and you can do nothing else, just do one thing, just do one thing. Cling to your Father's promises to you, even if it's just with your fingertips. And God's promises will be enough to keep you for eternity. Let's pray. Our Father, thank you so much that while we do suffer, your future for us is incredible. Your work in us for that future is unstoppable. Your love for us is unshakable. And Father, please enable us to develop a deep, deep trust in these precious promises, a deep love for them. And so in all the circumstances of life to find deep comfort in them. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.